0: Welcome to uh, One Great History Presents One Great 150, a podcast series dedicated to exploring 150 years or so of Winnipeg history. I'm Sabrina. And I'm Alex. And we're joined by friend and producer, Nick. Hello. Um, yeah, and today's our uh, eighth, eighth episode, episode, I guess. Yes. Uh, yeah, and this one's about John Robinson. Um, right, of course. Yeah, so who was a porter and labor organizer and member of the black community here in Winnipeg. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're going to be talking about, like, race and labor, um, specifically through, like, black porters and their fight for equal rights at work. Okay. Yeah, and obviously about John Robinson, who's kind of the central subject of this episode yeah. and leader of the Porters Union, which we'll get to. Um, and then also how all of this related to the Winnipeg General Strike of 1919. So this I've is never like, heard of that before. No. <laughs> so this is, like, nominally our strike episode. But Is this I, our first strike episode? Well, yeah, you talked about the strike last time. Yeah, last little, time, but like overall. I guess so, yeah. Huh. I think, you know, when you and I started the podcast, we were like fresh off. It was 2020 and we had just come out of 2019 where everything was strike <laughs> We had talked the about the strike for nothing else for months. Yeah, so I think we were both a little done with the strike. We're maybe ready to like start talking about it again. <laughs> we're open to it. Um, yeah, but I think the way I've approached this episode is that there were a lot of groups who were involved in the strike, so what I want to talk about is a story of, like, how one group got there. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, of course. So, um, it's a good idea also if you're interested in, like, black history, you could go back and listen to our William Beale episode. Right, yes. Because there's gonna, there's gonna be some stuff that comes out about, like, black immigration. You don't need that background to enjoy this episode, but. But if you want to. Yeah. Um, so one of the questions I want to answer right off the bat is why, when we talk about Black history in, like, Winnipeg specifically, it seems like we're almost always talking about railway porters. Yeah. Like, have you noticed this? Yes. <laughs> yeah, so, like, if you go to the CMHR or the Manitoba Museum, that's mostly the Black history you're yeah. going to see. And so there, um, there are a couple of reasons for that. So sometimes these things are just, like, a quirk of how history is kept. hmm um, so, for example, like labor history is comparatively easy to tell stories about because like unions and labor boards and such keep a ton of records, which we talked about. We last talked time. about last time, yes. Yep. Um, in contrast, like people's family histories don't tend to make it into the mm-hmm. archives unless you're like a fancy notable fan, yeah, of family, course. yes. Yep. Um, so going into this episode, um, I'll be able to tell you a lot about the things that John Robinson did as a labor leader, but, like, not as much as I'd like to be able to tell you about, um, his actual life and, like, who he was as a person. So some of those things do get lost, um, so that's part of why we're always talking about porters, but the other reason is that, like, railway lines wanted, black porters at this time and Winnipeg was a railway hub so this was just a big part of it's just how a lot of workers got here yes exactly that's exactly right so it makes sense that black porters would settle their families here they might be traveling across the country but this would be the kind of central place they'd come back to all roads lead to Winnipeg yeah (laughs) I've never heard that before I don't think that's a sentence that's ever been said (laughs) so yeah let's go into a little bit of um like railway and porter history all aboard all aboard. <laughs> choo-choo. The amount of times I made that train pun, doing anything vaguely railroad related at any of my jobs. I feel like someone needs to do a better choo-choo than I just did. That was weak. It's you not going to be me. It's not going to be you. <laughs> Nick, you want to give us a choo-choo? Choo-choo. <laughs> okay, great. Chugga-chugga, chugga-chugga. Yeah, the chugga-chugga I think yeah. is key. <laughs> um. So, yeah, in the early days of rail travel, um, kind of like pre eighteen nineties, turn of the century, yep. black workers did a number of jobs on railways, you know, from building railways to dining cars, all this kind of stuff. Um and do you know about the Pullman Company in the US? No. Okay, so they kind of established the tradition of like fancy sleeping cars on railways. Okay. Yeah. So and they were also the first to establish a tradition of like black porters specifically. So other railways basically come along and copy them. Okay. Yeah, so For example, Canadian Pacific Rail tries to make its sleeping cars as luxurious as possible, and they're, like, directly copying the Pullman Company. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Like, in terms of design and everything, too? Yeah, so in terms of design, but also just in terms of, like, the general concept that you want to go in a sleeping car and it's, like, actually going to be nice. Uh, Like, it's not just, like, getting from point A to point B. It's like, oh, we actually want you to have this be an experience. Okay. Yes. Yes. So William Van Horn, the president of Canadian Pacific Rail, commissioned designers for its interiors, arranged for gourmet meals, and so on. And black porters were kind of a part of this image of a luxury service. Okay. Um, And so it's interesting. I was actually, I was trying to explain this to my boyfriend who grew up in, like, Soviet Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And it was really hard to explain to him why this is something that would be desirable for like upper class white people in the early 1900s. Cause he comes from a different like racial context. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, so I was saying, you know, if you imagine sort of like the mammy figure and like gone with the wind, right. It's the right. same, the same kind of idea. The, it's the sort of like fantasy antebellum race play. Right. Right. Yes. Of like this smiling, docile black servant mm-hmm. who's like not really a, person i think in this conception right so this person who's sort of like friendly they exist to fulfill your whims and then kind of vanish somewhere else exactly sort of unseen when you don't want them to be friendly but never out of line um so this is what middle class and wealthy white travelers came to expect um and it could obviously be difficult to maintain this image Mm mm-hmm Um, black porters had to walk a fine line of being like friendly and polite but avoiding any social transgressions right yeah because obviously you couldn't seem too friendly also 100 percent. if you became too personal that could be a big issue um many passengers called all porters um porter boy or sometimes um often just george right yeah you told me about yeah so george kind of being the name for so all of them that comes from george pullman Oh. So because his railway company is the originator of yeah. sort of, like, black porters in general. Um, yeah. So I don't re- totally follow the logic no. from him to calling all- a huge, like, chunk of your employees. I guess you're order. in a George Pullman car with a George Pullman porter. George. I don't I know. I guess? Weird. I mean, anyway, you put it, it's rude, right? <laughs> no, it's not nice, regardless. No. Um, so Stanley Grizzle, who was a porter who wrote a book called My Name's Not George, mm-hmm. um, he wrote, Some porters were a study in controlled anger during their work shifts, always angry, and they would simmer during those shifts, for this was a job where every day you were made to feel that you were beneath the passengers. So, yeah. Yeah. No, it sounds infuriating. Yeah. Um, and already from about the 1880s, the vast majority of sleeping car porters were black. Mm-hmm. Um, And obviously there's like a huge railway boom in the 1880s and 1890s coming into the turn of the century Um, and the role of a porter like John Robinson was a pretty intense one as well in in addition to this sort of social role that you had to play so um, first of all you would be in charge of um, making sure that the train car that you would be working was clean and polished um you'd often have to show up like two hours early before the train actually left to make sure that it was like loaded with like wood or coal or ice depending on the season this extra time by the way was unpaid it was just like yeah it was just like your job to show up and make sure the train car is clean well i guess like if you don't do that prep work and then you're midway through the journey Yes. But you should still be paid for that. That should just be paid time. Yeah, and so there's a lot of this kind of nickel and diming of porters. And I think, like, of workers in general in this era. I don't think, yeah, I think... And maybe also now. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Um. So during the trip, he would be um, fully in charge of passengers' experiences. The porter would greet passengers and load their luggage. He would serve their food and drink, uh, remember their stops to make sure they got off. This isn't like the job of, like several different people like there should be it, like it really does feel that way yeah. yeah but i guess this is like this person is in charge of your experience from beginning to end and it's a lot um he'd have to like babysit kids sometimes oh. or there are stories that some of these porter tell porters tell of essentially having to like babysit drunk adults oh no yeah it's sure that like, yeah still happens on any kind of like long distance oh yeah 100 percent today and just, like, trying to make sure that they don't bother anyone else, because you're yeah. also in charge of that, right? Um, listen to travelers' stories, you know, kind of humor them. Oh, and... like, that one lonely person who just, like, really wants to tell you things. Yes, laugh um, at their jokes, right? I took the train to Ontario last year. Mm-hmm. and Did someone listen to all your jokes and laugh at them hard? I didn't say anything to anyone, because okay. I was there to get from point A to point B, and I didn't want to be that weird person that talked on the train. Yeah, fair. Other people didn't have that same issue. Yeah. <laughs> and at two separate points. Different old men on the train stood up and announced other train crashes along the line that they'd what? like gotten an alert for on their phone, being like, Oh, something crashed near like Toronto and they would just sit back down. Wild. Okay. <laughs> Thanks for the it horrifying o- <laughs> information. Wait, you said this was different old men? Two different old men had different like <laughs> here is a story I heard about a train crash. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> and it was like We weren't, like, doing, like, sharing or anything. It came out of nowhere. It was very weird. Huh. All right. I think something weird happens to people when you put them into a customer service situation that's, like, prolonged. (laughs) Listen to the thing that I (laughs) say and tell me that it matters. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, so that was essentially the job of a porter. Um... Like a lot of jobs at the time, they had pretty strict moral standards, so mm-hmm. no drinking, no smoking, no gambling. No swearing, I assume. Yeah, for sure. Um, and yeah, like, like I said, other jobs had those as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and porters typically worked 72-hour shifts. What's crazy about that is they didn't have sleeping quarters of their own. So where did they sleep? Just kind of well, wherever? effectively, they didn't. <laughs> what? Yeah, so what they would do is they would sort of wait for the smoking car to empty out at night and then sort of take catnaps there but you couldn't really ever get a full night's sleep because you were also in charge of anything that customers wanted during the night. Oh, God. Yeah, so if a passenger, like, woke up and wasn't feeling well or something, you were expected to be there. You couldn't just be, like, asleep in the smoking car, right? So, yeah, there's often kind of, like, chronic sleep deprivation. That seems like not a thing you want in a train, where people are responsible for, like, heating your train car. That's true, and, And, like, safety. Yeah, like, from a safety perspective alone, awful (laughs) no and you weren't allowed to sit down in front of passengers what is it with customer service jobs and like having to stand i don't know i have never once felt less served by a person because they were sitting (laughs) right (laughs) like maybe if they refuse to stand up if you ask them to do something but like yeah if someone is just sitting that's fine doing their job that's totally fine Um, Yeah, but Winnipeg was a pretty busy um, place for porters because typically this is where, like, the train car would kind of empty out and people would get back in. Yeah. So this was often where, like, the trip started or ended. Okay. Um, So that being said, there were certainly advantages to working as a porter. Um, it was actually, like, a reasonably good job. I know after all <laughs> all <of> that <laughs> stuff that I've said. But comparatively. Comparatively to, like, what might be available to a person as, like, a black Canadian in the, in the early 1900s. I can't imagine it would have been much more than, like, domestic labor. Yeah, domestic labor for sure. Um... We'll talk, John Robinson at some point worked as a stable hand, so okay. maybe kind of farm work or manual yeah. work. Yeah. I mean, there was, discrimination was real, right? And uh, it was could be difficult for mm-hmm. sure to find other jobs. So being a porter had like some cachet as well. Um, many could afford homes and cars. Yeah. Um, an experienced porter could make about $50 a month. Okay. So like we talked last time about like wages for women, right? And women were making, these women at Wilworth's were making like what, $6, six, six dollars a week? $6 a week. So. You know, this is more than twice that. Yeah. Like, not an incredible wage, but enough to, to live on. Yeah. For sure. Um, most of that, though, was tip-based, so it could kind of oh. dwindle in, like, the winter months. Um, and, of course, they got to travel, which for most people was, like, cost prohibitive. Yeah. So, yeah. You do hypothetically get to see some things, although I suppose the yeah. things you can see are limited also. By your race, like the things you have access to in the cities are This is true. Like often, though, I think what porters would do is they would go and like stay with other black families in the cities where they stopped. So, you know, they'd get to whatever, see black communities in different cities across Canada. Um, And, you know, they were like worldly often in a way that was like difficult to be in 1910. Yeah. Um, They engaged in conversations with people across the country. They picked up books and newspapers and fashions okay um yeah some porters actually would like you know say you got to montreal they'd like pick up a bunch of like you know dresses in montreal and bring them back to winnipeg to sell them oh so like kind of helped to set trends across the country in that way as well well that's really neat yeah and be a bit of extra cash as well i guess um many porters were university graduates um so they used the steady wages of their work later on to go and like start shops or businesses and yeah huh So basically, that's all to say that porters created and shaped black communities across North America, including, of course, here in Winnipeg. So um, we're going to talk now about um, really where labor comes into this, like organized labor. So this practice of hiring black porters specifically and white workers for everything else, which I think is like an important part of the story, right? It's not that like porters are black, but everyone else is like... Of various races. Now. Everyone else is white. Everyone else is white. Um, so this becomes ingrained and essentially it becomes this like de facto segregated workforce, um, which is embraced and in fact furthered by white railway workers. Okay, yeah. Yeah. So, um, we talked about this last time, but the turn of the century is a time of like pretty intense labor activism oh yeah yep (laughs) lots of it (laughs) so no everyone's unionizing everyone's unionizing um the laurier government at like the turn of the century not big fans no i think the government for most of that period this is true but not a big at some point laurier has to create the department of labor which i think is essentially a response to like oh man unions didn't stop existing just because i don't like them (laughs) (laughs) oh nuts (laughs) But, yeah, creates that to actually start dealing with some of the, like, legal ramifications yeah. of all these, like, you know, agreements that unions yeah. and employers are making. Um, so, in 1908, the Canadian Brotherhood of Railway Employees is founded. Okay. So, this is a union for most railway employees. Hmm. I'm sensing some exclusion. I wonder, I wonder who's going to be left out. So, <laughs> um, this, yeah, like... As soon as they're founded in 1908, they establish in their membership clause that membership is for white railway employees only. Is this, like, the construction portion or just, like, on-train portion? On-train portion. Okay. Yeah, so, like, um, conductors, um, people working in the dining cars. Okay. Yeah, so people yeah in order to be a member of the union so people that are sharing the same space as the porters functionally but yeah yeah. absolutely but they're part of a different union and it's interesting too i'll talk a bit more about um the cbre's kind of point of view a little bit um later like towards the end of this episode but they sort of paint their mission as being like a non-discriminatory one because they're including all these different classes of workers oh right because a lot of those old unions are like right there's like we talked last time there's like the cutters union the sewers everything is hyper specific yes this and is so broader but somehow more exclusionary yes just exclusionary in a different yeah. way um so they begin negotiating contracts with yep. railway employees um now railways begin to worry that because all of these other workers are unionized and porters are not that black workers will also begin to demand contracts oh because like like of course they will yeah um so what how would you respond to this sabrina (laughs) oh god i i feel like the solution is just to like treat people better pay people people more pay them a living wage no let black people into (laughs) the unions no (laughs) we're gonna do none of that Oh, um, no, what are we going to do instead? So, what the railway companies do is they begin relying more heavily on immigrant labor. Uh, so, essentially, they believed that immigrant laborers would be more compliant. Um, so, what they were looking for was to recruit specifically African Americans who had been subject to, like, Jim Crow laws in the United okay. States. And then also men from the West Indies who would have been living under colonial rule. hmm So... The idea here is that people in those living conditions, um, would have become like more compliant and wouldn't go starting labor movements. This is mm. foreshadowing mm. here. <laughs> like essentially they're looking for like a pre oppressed workforce, right? Yeah, yeah like, <laughs> they've already been kinda like trained to not question things. Yeah. Um But that's not really how that works. It's not <laughs> this is not how no. it also really assumes not. that like people wouldn't demand better things at any point if they saw the chance to. Yeah, or even just like, like you said, these are like workers that are sharing space with each other, right? If you're next to someone who's being paid twice as much as you are. And has like any sort of like labor agreement. They get like Sundays (laughs) off. You're going to be like, wait a minute, why do I have to work Sundays? Yeah. Um, so one of those immigrant railway workers is John A. Robinson. Oh. Yeah. So Robinson is recruited from Terre in St. Kitts, which is in the West Indies. Um, he goes first to New York City. Okay. So I assume this was a little before 1905. So he would have been about 23 when he okay. moved. So a young adult. This is an estimate based on – so I've had to sort of track down just, like, little clues kind of to put together right, a story, yeah. you know. So I found his daughter Violet's birth certificate in New York City in 1905, um, but I didn't find John and his wife Lucy's marriage certificate. So, so they I, were married in the West Indies, presumably. I assume so. And then were like, yeah, so I assume they were elsewhere pretty shortly before their daughter's birth yeah. and then moved to New York, uh, had their daughter Violet, and then um, pretty shortly thereafter, around 1908, he, uh, they moved to Winnipeg as a family. Okay. They lived on Selkirk Avenue okay um he's already listed as a porter on her birth certificate so he was like recruited to be I'm assuming that's how he then gets to Winnipeg Yeah, just the job yeah just goes to or like goes to work for a different rail. yeah presumably um so he goes to work for Canadian Pacific Rail first of all though he works for a number of railway companies over the years was it common to like bounce between um companies or like yes and no um I think we'll get into why he has to do that a little okay. bit later. <laughs> it's maybe okay. maybe not fully voluntary. Okay. It was pretty common to be bounced between regions within the same um within the same railway company. Okay. Which was like not always something that people appreciated, obviously. <laughs> no. <laughs> people were like, by the way, you work out of Ottawa now, right? You had to move everything. Yeah. Um, but one thing that's interesting here about this like recruiting of immigrant labor is that the railways and like CP Rail, especially, are pretty openly flouting Canadian immigration laws. Oh, yeah. So, um, this is where I was saying it might be useful to like listen to the William Beale episode, but I think, like, just like if I can summarize in one sentence here, the Canadian government is didn't essentially, want black people, they, yeah, yeah, they were trying to keep out black immigrants. Um, so what CP Rail, for example, would do, there were like, um, There actually still are, like, there are requirements when you immigrate to be able to, um, like, sustain yourself, like, financially. Yeah. So what they would do is they would give all of the people they were recruiting, like, $20 or whatever, have them cross the border, and then take the money back. (laughs) Yeah. Which is, like, a pretty wild thing to do. Um. That seems so simple as far as, like, an immigration grift goes. (laughs) That's true, eh? It's not much. It's just... you just gave someone money and then took it back. Yeah. It's like a three-step process. Yeah. <laughs> so um, this is also like a part of the story where I feel like there really aren't any good guys. Like the government and the railways are at odds, but also both kind of suck in this yeah. situation, right? Um, but yeah, the railway companies here, like we said, had like badly miscalculated. Yeah. Um, black railway workers recognized that they were being exploited people like (laughs) no kidding yeah (laughs) so you know people like john robinson start asking like you know is there anything we can do about this that of course remained to be seen but they certainly wouldn't be the like compliant workforce Mm -hmm. that the railway companies had hoped for so throughout the 1910s the segregation of railway workers is really codified and like partly through these union agreements Mm -hmm. right so, in 1913, um, for example, white unionized railway employees strike a deal with the Intercolonial Railway. Okay. Um, okay, I'm just gonna, like, take a little pause here for a second to say that um, there are so many railways in this story. They're, like, mostly <laughs> they're mostly all doing the same stuff. It's not super important <laughs> no, to know which. No, I assume which, they're yeah. all copying the same, like, Pullman method. Uh, yes. It's kind of set the standard and everyone's trying exactly. to do it. Exactly, yes. Um, so, it like if you're not following which railway is which it does not really matter. they're all functionally the same railway <laughs> yes so anyway they strike a deal with one of the railways um so in this case they get due process for termination seniority rights two weeks paid vacation um they get raises um uniforms are paid for um some meals are comped while they're on the road mm-hmm. or on the rails i suppose yeah. um so black workers on the icr did not get these same improvements and again, like you said, they're in the same space, right? It's Sh- like comped meals especially seems super no- noticeable. Also, were they not getting yeah. fed on these things then? No, I guess you you have to bring your own food or pay. Yeah, that's crazy. Because even like I waitressed for a while, and we would get yeah. at least a discount on a long shift if not yeah. free food. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how much things happened like unofficially. You know, yeah. if someone, you know, maybe if you knew someone in the kitchen, they'd slip you something. But like, stole a bag of peanuts from the bar when no yeah. one's looking. <laughs> But no, in theory, in theory, you would have to, like, pack your own meals for the 72 hours or whatever, oh, right? Awful. Yeah. Or, you know, as you stop at places, get stuff. Yeah. Um, so this kind of thing really cements the differences between how black and white railway workers were being treated. And also, like, effectively locks black workers out of all those other jobs that are now covered by these union agreements. Right. Because, like... Where before there were these union agreements in place, it might have been possible, though difficult, to kind of move up into a different job. Um, Yeah, now you can't, like, get from porter to, I wouldn't say conductor, or, like... Well, exactly, yeah, yeah, because the the railway has essentially agreed to hire union men. But union men then can't be black. Exactly, so they're shut out. So there's this really interesting, like pull between people who are like in our traditional telling of the strike and of like labor movements in general these are like the heroes of the story yeah. right these people who are you know working like often at great personal risk to improve their own lives and the lives of their fellow workers mm-hmm. it's just that they're doing it like not even just by overlooking the welfare of other more marginalized workers but like actively campaigning against actively them actively okay. keeping them out yeah so, um, a bunch of other railways, the Grand Trunk Railway, C- Canadian Northern Railway, and CP Rail follow suit with, like, similarly segregated mm-hmm. workforce agreements over the next couple years. Um, and then World War I happens. And things get better. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's how wars work, right? Huh. That's what the whole last episode was about. Yes. Is things getting better over the yeah. course, yeah. No, so we, yeah, we talked about that a ton last episode, right? That just, like, working conditions get worse. Yeah during the war so um yeah unemployment falling wages inflation um and also like the targeting of like immigrants and minorities as the cause of these things right um so around 1916 1917 john robinson and three other black railway workers begin meeting in secret on a building, Ooh. yes, in a building on Main Street to discuss the creation of a new union. Which building on Main Street? Um, I can't remember the address off the, off the top of my head. I did look it up and it's a head shop now. <laughs> well. Yeah, okay. Yeah, it's really unfortunate. So still. one of the head shops on Main Street. <laughs> it's one of the head shops on Main Street. It also, like used to be, like, the site of, like, a bunch of actually, like, really important clubs and stuff for, like, Winnipeg's black community, so it's, like, Aww. a little sad that none of that's been preserved, but what you gonna do? So they were holding secret meetings. Was it, like, something else at the time? Was it just, like, a uh-huh. store that they were meeting in? So I can't remember what was on the main floor, but there's also, like, um, I think there was maybe a pool hall in there? Okay. Yeah, but there was, like, also a club. There was, like, a social club that met there called okay. SQP, Which I could not find a single trace of. I'm sure, like, if I went more into the archives, there's probably some stuff. Yeah, But, like, maybe some building permits found absolutely nothing about about them. I think they were sort of, like, a a Mason-style group. So they weren't necessarily, like, super, like, not super secret, but, like... Yeah, yeah, they weren't, like, publicizing themselves yes, to everyone. Yes, exactly. Also, I suspect the chances of, like, a black community club making it into, like, the mainstream newspapers is a little it, it That does make things a little trickier. And because, like, Winnipeg's black community was relatively small, it wasn't like, you know, if you're studying, like, black history in New York City, there's, like, separate black newspapers, right? Yeah. We didn't really have that here, so... No, and I'm assuming the communities, like, talked to each other. Yeah, when well, they exactly, right? Share. They're, like, yeah. all living on Selkirk Avenue. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so they start c- discussing this creation of a new union, and obviously, like, the logic here is pretty simple. The CBRE, that's the Canadian Brotherhood yeah. of Railway Employees, won't let us join. So, like, what choice do we have? We'll make our own. Create something new. So in April of 1917, they officially form the Order of Sleeping Car Porters with Winnipeg as its headquarters. Okay. Um, so this is often cited, um, as either the earliest or, like, one of the earliest black railway unions in North America, or even, huh. like, black unions in North America, but I think it's important to make a distinction here that the OSCP was, like, not actually exclusionary in the same way that the CBRE was. Okay. So, like, in theory, a white railway employee could join. Would, would he just have to be, like, a porter? Is that kind of the yes. logic? Yeah. Yeah. So... It didn't have the same kind of, like, racial tenets in its membership clauses, yeah. if that makes sense. Um, so, John Robinson goes to the Trades and Labor Congress of Canada and applies for a charter for this new union. And that People give it to him so willingly. <laughs> so fast. They're like, yes, I'm here. It's great. <laughs> um, no, the charter is denied. Oh, so, well. Tom Moore, who's the president of the Trades and Labor Congress, essentially says, oh, there's already a railway union. <laughs> No! <laughs> no, but you understand why that doesn't work. Yeah. So what he tells them is that they need to seek auxiliary status with the Canadian Brotherhood of Railway Employees. But it seems like they're not going to give it to them, right? Well, also, do you want to, do you know what auxiliary status is in a union? No. Okay, so this is um, often something where, like, unions will have, like, an auxiliary for women, like, for the wives of workers. Okay, but that's not the same thing as actually. It's not. <laughs> No, Hmm. it's decidedly different. And, um, and also, like, in a way, sort of, like, I don't know, I don't know if I want to get too much into this, sort of emasculating. Yeah. Right? Um, to be, like, no, join the, like, make yourself, like, a little wives group within the... Of a group who are doing, like, the same manual labor as some of their colleagues. Yeah. And, like, I should say also, like, women are sometimes relegated, like, women workers also were sometimes relegated to, like, auxiliaries of unions, but... I mean, if the women were getting a union in the first place uh, yeah. anyway, which also last episode. <laughs> yes. Um, so in 1918, um, Robinson goes to the CBRE's annual convention in Port Arthur and basically forces the issue of black membership onto the agenda. Oh, good for him. Yeah. So this essentially completely derails the conversation. <laughs> oh, no. It turns into a massive debate. Mm-hmm. Um. White railway workers double down on their claim that black workers were Jeez. putting their jobs at risk. Um, they noted that railway comp- companies had been threatening to begin replacing white cooks and waiters with black employees. So the railway companies have essentially begun pitting these two groups of employees against each other. I mean, other, of course, which seems like the obvious repercussion to having an exclusionary union is yes? that your <laughs> employers are going to find a way to weaponize that, right? But I don't think, they, they don't seem to have put together that having a united workforce would be the way to prevent that. <laughs> um, so, black workers argue that they were equals, right, as loyal yeah. Canadians and as railway workers and also that their inclusion would strengthen the union. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So, ultimately, though, the matter was dismissed at this convention and members of the CBRE proceeded to a minstrel show for their evening's entertainment that <laughs> oh, night. Oh, God, no. <laughs> Oh no! It's just like horrifically bad. It's like a real like salt in the wound re- thing, yes. right? Like yeah, it really is. You don't get equal rights in this union. We're gonna watch white people pretend to be you and laugh at it now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Ugh, awful. Yeah. So um, they do, though, like have some remarkable success despite the reticence of white unions um, to support them. Um, so they do actually manage to negotiate um some contracts over the next two years um for sleeping car porters working for cn rail and the grand trunk railway okay so so some progress yeah cp rail really holds out they like refuse to recognize them Mm. but um none of this unfortunately is great for the personal fortunes of john robinson um it seems like he at least briefly loses his job for about a year here oh. um yeah so like in henderson's directory you know he's been like porter 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 and then he's a stable hand for a while oh yeah yeah so we can only guess that it was probably because the, of the union didn't activities make yeah many friends yes yeah, so he finds another job as a porter but um yeah, back to kind of, like, the effect of the war. Um, you had talked last time about, like, the effect of the war on women workers, and there's definitely a bit of, like, a parallel here, mm-hmm. which is that, so, Canada's military was segregated during the First World yeah. War. And so, many black recruits were just, like, fully turned away. Yeah. Even, like, we talked about that in William Beale. I think he said that he had tried to join the military, and they were like, well, it's, like, you can join a black you yeah. know, troop. And he was like, no. I will say, based on what you've told us about William Beale, I don't know if he would have been a good I fit don't... for the army. <laughs> no, I don't think he would have. It was probably it's kind of like eccentric scholar. Yeah, may not have been someone no, you wanted. No, he wouldn't have. He wouldn't have had a good time. <laughs> um, but no, in too the too busy I, reading. But certainly there were other people who yeah, were people who soldiers would... yeah, <laughs> who are a little more suited for that yeah that were turned away. So what? But what that means just is that like in the same way that a lot of like male workers are replaced by women workers during the war there are some uh white workers replaced by black workers right yeah of course in jobs that they hadn't traditionally been allowed into um which you know you can imagine white workers are thrilled by yeah so another important aspect is that black men who had been able to serve were emboldened by their service um and this was the case also I think with a lot of returning soldiers, right? Like we see the involvement of soldiers in the strike. Yeah. That people come back from the war and they say, like you asked us to go and give our lives possibly for the yeah. country. Now we'd like to come home and just like be able to feed ourselves. Would that yeah. be okay? And no. then they say no. Yeah. <laughs> no, actually. They ch- say, Haha <laughs> jokes on yeah. you we changed our minds. <laughs> Um, okay, so let's get into the actual strike. Yeah, okay. Yeah, okay, so you talked last time about, like, the longer run-up to the strike, so I won't go over, like, kind of all of that again, but I guess, like, the big question for this episode is, like, where is, where are the members of the Order of Sleeping Car Porters positioned, right, as we go into May of 1919? Like, does it make sense for them to join this massive labor action? Right, yeah. Like, Like, was this even their fight, right? Um... And I think, like, I was thinking about it, and there are a lot of reasons why it didn't make a ton of sense to join. Um, no promises had been made to members of the OSCP yeah. about, like, future inclusion. I don't even think there were discussions about that. Yeah. Um, some of the people they would be striking alongside, walking next to in protest, would be the very people who had actively excluded them. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the past, like we saw with these, like, union, these contract negotiations in the 1910s, Black workers had not benefited from the successes of white labor unions, and hadn't been like actively like di- it, it, I, yeah in fact, disenfranchised. It, the word I'm looking for here. I, don't, I think I think yeah. well I think that does make sense. Negatively impacted yes, by the sure. actions of these yeah yeah and also that like their position is more kind of tenuous in the yeah. workforce to begin with. Right. Is this a good time to talk about what was going on? Because black workers aren't the only ones sort of segregated by race in winnipeg yeah going into 1919 yeah because like indigenous workers also aren't allowed into unions yeah which means that when we come up to the general strike there is like a huge gap in our knowledge of like were indigenous people involved at all yeah totally We just don't know no it's interesting like even if you think about like image of this of the strike it's a lot of kind of like white men yeah in in a crowd right but then also like historically when we think about, say, like, building the Shoal Lake Aqueduct, yeah. the plan had initially been to hire Indigenous workers yes, from Shoal absolutely. Lake. And it was uh, white union men yeah. who said, no, Winnipeggers should get the job. The union men should have it. Yeah. They're advocating for their own self-interest here and for workers' rights, but then also actively negatively impacting yeah Indigenous people. No, that's such a so, good point. Yeah, no, that definitely these um, labor unions at the time were exclusionary and more ways than one so you can see why then like people wouldn't necessarily want to join the cause yeah for That's sure been, like actively kicking them out for yeah, years and no, years like, and years. and like it's it's funny i've had a hard time writing this episode because so i'm like this is not an anti-strike episode no we are very <laughs> pro-strike exactly <laughs> but but um just like i'm trying to look at a you know somewhat broader maybe more nuanced way of talking yeah. about it and so yeah, so I mean, it's we like can't. I think it's dangerous to put anyone on like a pedestal, right? Yeah. To be like, these strikers never did anything wrong. Yes, exactly. Um so yeah, so it's like why why did they then yeah, make that choice? Yeah. Like that's that I think is because like the sleeping car porters yeah, joined the strike. They did. And I think that's the like central important thing of this episode is that big question of like why. Yeah. Um, so I guess like there's like the ideological level, right? Yeah. Of just like workers solidarity yep right the order of sleeping car porters they had been advocating for greater inclusion and solidarity and this is their chance to really like put their money where their mouth is um on a less positive note winnipeg has already been seeing um riots targeting like immigrant labor yes so, we talked about that last episode as well. Yes. So, certainly, there's the risk if they don't join the strike of becoming targets and whatnot. But way then, also, another. if you do join, you might be the yes. target. Yes. So, they're really between a rock and a hard place there. <laughs> yeah. Um, but also, and I think this is maybe an interesting point Winnipeg labor leaders, kind of like people coming onto the scene leading up to 1919 hadn't declared themselves as advocates of Jim Crow in like the same way as a lot of these union leaders had oh interesting right like if you think about the people who are actually labor leaders we I mean we don't hear them talk about this stuff a ton but they're certainly not advocating for um exclusion no um in fact they're often trying to like tamp down these kind of like anti-immigrant sentiments um and, like, you mentioned in the previous episode that a lot of the people who are coming up in, like, labor and city politics are, like, actual socialists. Yeah, they've kind of, like, made their way into the scene, finally. Yeah, and so, like, this is a super complex history, um, and this is, like, this is basically what I wrote my MA on, yeah, so I'm gonna... This is your wheelhouse. <laughs> yes. Go for it. So, no, the extremely shortened version here is that, like, socialist and communist political parties in North America were, like, broadly speaking, the first to advocate for full racial equality yeah to like allow black members into their ranks. And so there is some reason to think like okay, maybe I didn't want to tie my wagon to like these these labor leaders before, but these are maybe yeah, like the labor new leaders. up and comers, yeah. seem a bit more like in line, a little more open. Yeah. You know, and like there haven't been any promises made. Yes. Yeah, so. But just that they're like maybe, maybe, maybe. There's, there's a chance. Right? Yes. Yeah. Um and also like we see ideas like that in the 1 Big Union. Right. Right? That we talked about last time. The idea of like this, like radically unified working class, Mm -hmm. which would include ultimately women, would include immigrants, um, include unskilled workers. Right. That was a big thing. Yeah. And so that's that's exactly what I think may have been one of the kind of ideas here. But yeah. So when May 15th rolls around, are they walking off right away or is there... Not quite on May fifteenth. So let's maybe let's talk about what happened on May fifteenth. Yeah. Let's let's do an actual little strike history here. <laughs> yeah, so listeners may be familiar with some of this, especially if you were like in Winnipeg and if you took any tour with twenty nineteen. Between like twenty seventeen yeah. to twenty twenty. But we have some non Winnipeg listeners. <laughs> yeah. I thought you were gonna say
1: if you were in Winnipeg in nineteen ninety. No. <laughs> yeah, if you're no, extremely if you were- old. <laughs>
0: Older than we thought humanly possible. If you're, if you're 110 plus, <laughs> And you can get podcasts. Great. <laughs> wow, we're really impressed. You found out how to use Spotify. Good job. Um, now I've gotten completely derailed. <laughs> no, no, it's no, fine. I was going to say, if you were in Winnipeg in 2019, I feel like it was hard to avoid a lot of this yeah. stuff, especially like if you ever went to a museum. Um, but no, we do have non-Winnipeg listeners yeah. as well. So Um, yeah, essentially on May 15th, 1919, something around 30,000 workers in Winnipeg, unionized and non-unionized, walk off the job to join the Winnipeg General Strike. Yeah, and so we can maybe talk just like a little bit about what that was about. It had started with the um, metal and building workers, um, essentially, that um, they had been in negotiation with their employer and it really had not been going well. And they had been, I think, fighting for, it was a higher wage, obviously, and also collective bargaining. Yeah, so this is a big thing, and I feel like this is kind of like, it doesn't come up as much because it's kind of boring right <laughs> no it's I feel like when you're talking to like a group of say fifth graders on yes, a tour you're like r- these kids will get the wage difference they'll thing. get That's and easy. like working conditions they'll easy get. easy collective bargaining <laughs> takes a bit more time and it's like I've only got an hour yeah they wanted their union recognized well what's a union <laughs> yeah No, struggled with that a lot when I was doing tours in 2019. There was one that I wasn't doing, but one of my, like, employees had done where they were taking some fifth graders out, and they were talking about how, like, the government was scared about all of these, like, socialists, essentially, and this kid said, what's socialism? (laughs) Yeah. And the tour guide kind of managed, I can't remember what answer they had pulled out, but they would said something that was, like, a pretty good answer, and the kid was like, why wouldn't they want that? (laughs) Oh, no. And it was like, oh, God, we're going to be here all day. Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, let's talk about collective bargaining. I feel like we haven't busted it out. Explain what they're asking for. Yeah. So, I mean, essentially what they want is for their union to be recognized. Like, you know, if you're part of a non-unionized workplace, it's your sole responsibility when you join that workplace to decide or, like, to ask for whatever you want, to ask for your wages and your working conditions and each person individually coming in has to ask for those yeah. things and continue to ask for those things as you work, yeah. right? So the idea is that if you're part of a union, you all join together mm-hmm. and you collectively ask for yes. certain things, um, which a lot of employers don't like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Much harder to ignore. Yes. Yeah. Right. If one person's asking for a raise, it's a lot easier to ignore than if your entire yeah. workforce is threatening a walkout, right? If yeah. they don't get that raise. So that's essentially what's happening with the metal workers in Winnipeg yeah. in like the spring of 1919. Yeah. And negotiations are going so badly. Going very badly. Yeah. So essentially, the um, a Trades and Labour Council um, they call for a strike. They say, okay, like this, these negotiations are doing really going really badly. Yeah. We're gonna do um, a general strike, or like at the time, it's often called like a sympathetic strike. Right. Yeah like meaning we're not necessarily striking for like ourselves we're striking yes to help them to help them and the general strike is like a little bit different than most of the strikes that we see because it doesn't necessarily even have specific demands in a lot of cases right like they're you know it's sort of broader demands of like we want the right to collective bargaining we want yeah you know generally better working conditions and wages um yeah i always um so back to may 15th um i always like that the hello girls walked off first thing in the morning so those are the telephone operators the hello girls um yeah they were the first to go off the job and it's like that uh winnipeg tribune joke when the hello girls went on strike in 1918 that you couldn't call to complain about phone service being bad because there wasn't any. well and i always think too like if i imagine about like if i woke up on may 15th 1919 how would i know what had happened if i like wasn't actively involved in labor you know you like wake we up try and try and call each other to gossip about yeah right can't get through. and can't get through you're yeah. like what's going on and then you go outside and you're like oh the streetcars aren't running and my milk's not here and i live close to crescent creamery and it smells a bit like ferment like, <laughs> like rotting milk now oh no i don't know that it would all no <laughs> no but a few days later <laughs> if you hadn't figured it yeah. out after about a week you'd get it from the smell <laughs> for sure <laughs> Um, no, so it's about five days later that the Order of Sleeping Car Porters okay. takes their vote. I don't know why it takes them those five days, but May 20th, John Robinson, um, makes his way down from their union headquarters on Main Street to Union Station to inform his bosses that his union had taken their vote and that they had decided to stry- strike with only oh. two opposing. He went by himself to tell everyone to. I guess <laughs> all right um, the western labor news also records that the um order of sleeping car porters had donated 50 dollars to the strike fund oh good so they're they're all in yeah of and course. Like, you know it's it's a reasonably small union yeah that's a yeah it's a lot of money to yeah. donate for a small union um now we don't have like a lot of john robinson's own words to tell the story but we do have in this case a letter that he wrote to the president of the um cbre so that's Ooh. the exclusionary yeah. white union yeah. i know there's so many acronyms in this episode i'm just trying to <laughs> i know about so um he wrote that he and his fellow porters were quote men knowing what we want and capable of defending the benefits which should be obtained through affiliation with other unions working for the same objective so i feel like the second half of there of that is kind of like you know whatever yeah. we working with other unions but i feel like men knowing what we want is like quite powerful yeah um, but also, you know, the thing about, like, affiliation with other unions, obviously, like, what he's asking for here, not in so many words, is, like, hey, we're including ourselves in this labor action. Include us. Include us. us. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like, we are, this like, is... ready, willing, and able to be included and work together. And yes, it's... like, we're showing you right now that we're willing to walk off the job when you are, yeah. even when, you know, this isn't necessarily for us. And also, like non-unionized workers are at like specific risk too of like yes. losing their jobs 100%. during a the strike there's some yeah. more protection for unionized workers also not everyone has like strike pay no yeah for sure and like i imagine you know a small a small union like the oscp that had yeah. only been founded two years ago i imagine any not like super secure no not super secure and any funds that they had would have been pretty minimal it yeah. would have just been you know the community trying to yeah. support each other i suppose um, in classic Winni- Winnipeg fashion, I've seen very different numbers on the number of porters <laughs> that go on strike. Well, God forbid anyone take actual notes. Yeah, we'll just make a broad guesstimate based on what we remember. It's anywhere from it was at least a hundred, possibly several hundred. <laughs> I don't, I don't know. Oh God. Yeah. Okay. An indeterminate number. An of indeterminate porters. <laughs> number of porters, which was at least a hundred. <laughs> That's still a lot. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. And that would have represented also, like, um, you know, like, in in Winnipeg, like, most black families would have had a family member who was a porter. Right, yeah. So that's, you know, a big sacrifice that the black community is making to sacrifice that income for however long this is going to go on. This might not be a question you have an answer to, but then, like, were there rail workers in Winnipeg on strike who weren't living in Winnipeg? Like, if a porter was stopped in Montreal... Or was from Montreal, but was stopped here. Was he then just on strike? Yes. Um. This is part of the reason that um the number of strike of striking porters, I think, is a little bit complicated. Oh, because some of them were just from out of town. <laughs> yeah. So like, I think it may be that like initially there are a hundred people in Winnipeg who are like we're striking. Yeah. But then like a few days later, there's like another two hundred and fifty. Okay. That are kind of pulled off CN Rail. The strike committee is like, hey guys, get okay. Off. Yeah. Um, And definitely the effect of that is felt pretty quickly. So, yeah, I think like um, trains are pulling into Winnipeg with porters and leaving without them. Oh, wow. Yeah. So um, on May 30th, the Tribune notes that westbound trains were without porters or dining car help. Sleeping car passengers had to make their own beds while the kitchen and tables were placed at the disposal of the, of the passengers who served their own meals. Oh, the horror. I know. You might have to make yourself food. Also, <laughs> you don't have to make your bed. <laughs> That's true, I guess. Depending on the kind of, like, sleeping car, I guess. Yeah. Some of them have those, like, folding beds. Right, you yeah. Kinda, you kind of gotta You have that. to. Um, so... Pulling back just to, like, the broader bit of the strike here, I guess, it's worth mentioning that, like, the, obviously, Trades and Labor Council, which you talked about a bit last episode, is trying to, like, push for the strike, but there is also significant opposition from the city, from the province, and from the federal government. Yes. So, by May 30th, we have the Citizens Committee of 1,000 in full swing. Are they in your notes at all? They are. They're coming up. Soon. Okay, then we'll wait. Okay, we'll, we'll hold wait. off on getting into them. But, like, speaking of like. <laughs> Nick started laughing at that <laughs> <one>. <laughs> Um Speaking though of like repercussions. Yeah. Um, as like one of the things, also, like you talk about like government um, pushback, but also just like employers. Yeah. A lot of workers in the city are told unequivocally, if you don't come back to work like right now, yeah. you're going to be fired. Um, and so. The porters are told the same. Mm-hmm. Um, most of them do not return to work. I think 29 do. That's a low number. It is. I don't know why I have that specific number and not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's interesting that that one, they got that, like, on the dot. No questions. <laughs> that right. one's from a secondary source and someone I trust. So I'm just gonna. Okay, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but but of, yeah, like, the majority, say like, a couple hundred people, 29 is pretty low. Yes, for sure. So most of them walked away from essentially, like, their only reliable career in this city arguably in a lot of the country yeah yeah absolutely and you know like these companies they're not gonna forget if you move to another city right yeah (laughs) like hi it's me but in a mustache (laughs) schmon schmommenson i I don't strike yeah (laughs) i've never striked before (laughs) what's a strike (laughs) um yeah but throughout june cn rail runs ads for sleeping car porters oh do they yeah i guess they don't like people having to make their own beds Are they hiring specifically black workers, or is it... Um, here, I've got one of the ads here. No, it's just, like, generally for... Okay, yeah, it says, uh, wanted experience, dining car, stewards, cooks, assistant cook, waiters, also sleeping car porters, positions permanent. Yeah, so that's, like... They're, like, completely replacing everyone forever. Yeah, and I wonder if this isn't partly a scare tactic. It has to be, right? Right? Because, like, these are, like, fairly... I mean, I've kind of cut it out, this one that you've seen here, but these are fairly sizable ads. It's gotta be largely a uh, like we could replace you if you don't yes, come Yes, especially back the positions permanent thing, yeah. right? Where it's like, you know, we're not looking Should for... Should underline that twice for instance. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, But... Um, Sarah Jane Mathieu of the, so she's written this book called North of the Color Line, which is, like, for sure my, my biggest source here. She's incredible, an incredible historian. And she does this amazing job of talking about how, like, the strike itself was racialized. And here's, here's where we'll get into the Citizens Committee stuff. Okay. So. I don't want to seem too excited, (laughs) but they're a very confusing group. (laughs) Okay. So, yeah. I mean, I think, like, people who have, like, any, like, general awareness of the strike, um, will have these, like, iconic images in their head of the various protests held during the yeah. strike, right? So, like, if you think about, like, these groups of men walking down the street with, like, signs with slogans. Yeah. So, like, what do those slogans say? Um, oh, we used to have a mural of this one that said, Britons never shall be slaves. Right, yes. I mean, slavery is a thing that is racialized. Right, yeah. Um, there's another one that says... Also, it's interesting because oh, Britons yeah. famously were the ones doing the slavery, too, this- right? <laughs> yep this is true um another one says only a slave could sign um like the no strike pledge yeah. they were being asked to sign at the time it says a free man a white man never so that one's oh, even more wow they're really just chucking it, white in there yeah yeah so i mean the strike itself is racialized in of course to the yeah. extent of like
1: you know, know how we, much of
0: life was at that point right? yeah and even this makes me think a little bit of like when we talked about like suffragettes Right. Also like asking racialized. for Yeah. Asking for the vote and in the context of like, well, we're white women. We should vote. Yeah. If we're letting these Ukrainians vote. Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> um, yeah, and I won't get too much into that, but that's actually a really good point that like whiteness is defined a lot more narrowly at this point yeah. as well. It's very different than the way we think of it today. Yes. Like an Eastern European would not necessarily be kind of conceptualized as white. No. No, it's changed a lot yeah so when they say a white man they're, they're talking about they're someone talking who's about english they're talking about brits for sure and maybe uh, maybe not even the irish so yeah maybe the, the scottish i feel like it's english scottish maybe irish yeah. everything else is kind of a big old question <laughs> yeah. mark um yeah so within the labor movement there's kind of this like push and pull between like strike leaders denouncing attacks on immigrants but then, like, and, like, insisting they're fighting for universal rights, but then at the same time, this rhetoric, right? right. About, like, getting rights because of this, like, vir- by virtue of whiteness. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that brings us to the Citizens Committee of 1000, for whom there is really not the same struggle about inclusivity. <laughs> <laughs> no. No. No, there's not a lot of mystery about their stance on a lot of things. <laughs> So I didn't even write notes for this because I knew that you'd have things to say about the Citizens Committee. <laughs> what me? So okay, tell us what the Citizens okay, Committee. Okay, so we was. talked about the earlier iteration of them in 1918. The, is Citizens, the Citizens Committee of 100. 100. 100. They're so much bigger now. Uh yeah. So like when? Like 10 times. <laughs> 10 times bigger. They're so much bigger and they're so much stronger. You wouldn't believe it. They're all six foot four. <laughs> <laughs> My dad could fight your dad. That's yeah. kind of the energy they're coming yeah. in with. Um. Yeah, so the Committee of One Thousand is very deliberately modeled after the Committee of One Hundred and some of the same people involved. Um they are mostly made up of Winnipeg sort of upper crust who are business owners and lawyers. There's a lot of lawyers involved. There are a lot of lawyers involved. Um and there's not a thousand of them, to be clear. We I don't, don't have like think a, there's like close to a thousand of them. No, like they managed to pull a hundred for the committee of one hundred. Mm-hmm. But like based on what we know of the Committee of One Thousand today, it seems to be mostly the work of AJ Andrews and a couple of other lawyers like Isaac Piplato. Right, like a couple of AJ Andrews friends. friends basically, do you, do you think it was like an optimistic name? Like they named it with the assumption uh, they were going to recruit. They a talk about it in the state trembled. <laughs> okay, yeah. Which is um the best book you can read on the strike for sure. Um, talking about how like they had to try and make themselves sound. Bigger yes. than last time. Like we're not going to be defeated. There's a thousand of us. It's a firm line. Yeah. So it does make it sound very imposing. It does. Though then until you get... like think about who's involved, you're like, oh, it's just one guy. Yeah. with His buddies. <laughs> it's mostly a very angry AJ Andrews. <laughs> but the thing is, AJ Andrews has pull in the government that the strike yeah. committee does not. Andrews went to school with people who are now in Ottawa as politicians. When they're sending out, say, Gideon Robertson, mm-hmm. who was the strike negotiator in 1918 to come back to Winnipeg, yeah. Andrews intercepts him in Thunder Bay yeah, and talks about what's going on in Winnipeg. It's like this big, scary Bolshevik revolution that he has to stop. Yeah, and I think, like, the Citizens Committee and A.J. Andrews are pretty instrumental in, like, asking for more firepower to uh, be brought in. In, like, bringing in weapons, specifically. Yeah. yeah, like calling in the military. Yeah, who aren't, like, called in secretly. They secretly smuggle in, like military Nuts. weapons yeah in case this turns violent yeah and i think the committee uh has their own newspaper but they also use the winnipeg telegram which yeah. is by far our most conservative paper at the time yeah and they also really use kind of a racialized rhetoric yes. to talk about, i'm assuming that's where so, you're gonna wind that's up going where, that's where i was that's where yes. i was going yes <laughs> no just that um a lot of the and i thought about pulling some specific quotes but basically what, any quote any <laughs> quote they're what they're all saying is essentially that this is a bolshevik plot um instituted by the alien enemy yeah oh everything talks about the enemy aliens who are trying to like covertly ruin the city yeah so it's this real kind of like anti-immigrant campaign which is building off of what's been going on in winnipeg with like the anti-immigrant riots earlier in the year like yeah and so certainly like they're not specifically targeting black canadians no, I'd argue they're but, mostly targeting Jewish immigrants. Yes, and they're sort of like the dog whistles they're using. Yes, but I think certainly like any kind of visible difference during this time gets would, you have put been, in yeah, right? would have been the cross. essentially, right. Would have been dangerous. Would have put a target on your back for sure. Um. Yeah. Anything else we want to t- say about the Citizens Committee? Ooh boy, I could say <laughs> a lot about <laughs> about them. They're an interesting group in the way they kind of like manipulate behind the scenes in a yeah. way that we hadn't really seen until recently. Mm-hmm. It's a very strange group of people that, like, yeah. they go over the mayor's head, like, yeah, Mayor Charles Gray is not, like, the most pro-labor. No, it's funny that I, like, I don't even, like, bring him up in this because... I Well, you barely talk about him in the context of the strike because, like, he yeah. is essentially rendered powerless by the actions of the Committee of 1000. Yeah. Like, he kind of, like, makes a couple of big speeches. He, like, comes out and he also has some, like, anti-alien enemy rhetoric, yeah. but, like... Yeah, gives a couple of speeches, but really he's not the one with the the pull. That is the committee and the federal government. Because even, like, the province, which is, I think, it's Tobias C. Norris at the time, Mm -hmm. just kind of washes his hands of it. And is like, this is a city problem, (laughs) get out of here. Which is pretty wild for, like, the biggest strike in the (laughs) century. Because also, like, Norris is the one that gives women the right to vote, like, in 1916, there's kind of an appearance of like yeah. progressiveness that yeah. doesn't follow through into 1919 although yes then he's like oh this is actually a little scary for I'm me i'm going to sit back and we'll just see what happens yeah. let the cards fall where yeah. they may <laughs> <laughs> um yeah so in june um about a dozen strike leaders are arrested yes um and so as that a is result, the work uh, of the rcmp or not not the, the, RCMP, the, the royal North northwest, northwest mounted police, police which become are, the rcmp yeah they're the precursors to the rcmp so if you don't know the rcmp were um created essentially to as a response to, to the strike yeah they were like "Ooh, we don't want this again we need like a bigger yeah. so yeah they police. arrest several yeah. men in the dead of yeah. the night from their homes yeah. It's like June 19th, I believe. Um, 17th days, or 19th. 16th or 17th? I think 17th. 17th. Because um, I think it's four days later on the 21st yes. that they hold like this silent protest. Right, yes. Um, so this is where we get, I think like all of our mental images from the strike pretty It's the much. streetcar. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, the streetcar. And um, so... This is also when we get Bloody Saturday. Yes. So um, what happens is that the Royal Northwest Mounted Police charge at protesters with batons and also with bullets. Do we want to back up a little bit oh, and sure. just talk about, like, why there's a protest and stuff? Yeah, In case Because I feel like we're very, like, oh, we know all of this. We <laughs> yeah. don't need to elaborate anymore. Of course, everyone knows exactly what happens. Yeah, I mean, the protest is essentially about the arrests. arrests. Yeah. Yeah, so the people arrested are... Um, Not necessarily like the biggest labor people in the city, but the most yeah. vocal involved in the yeah. Trades and Labor Council. Uh, a lot of them are also involved in the uh, December nineteen eighteen meeting. Oh yeah, tell us about that. Uh, we talked about it a bit yeah, in the that last was episode. The, yeah, the Western Conference. So it's or like R.B. Right? Russell and William Ivins, George Armstrong. Mm-hmm. These are men that had been flagged as being essentially potential Bolsheviks already. Yeah. In the plan, as sort of orchestrated by A.J. Andrews, is to have the police arrest these men. Yeah basically try them for sedition yeah so maybe we should explain what sedition means conspiracy to overthrow the government essentially <laughs> yeah. and his goal is to then have them like deported yeah that is the end goal of these arrests in andrew's yeah. eyes is to get rid of sort of the like ringleaders yeah so again there's this anti-immigrant rhetoric right The the idea yeah. that like oh these are just like a like proper like canadian read british yeah person could not actually have these ideas these have been imported from like eastern europe but then like when we get to the trial later send the people away and then it's fine well when we get to the trial later of course most of the men involved are british yeah there's like i think three or four eastern european men that are arrested and then one is one is deported i think one is deported all all of them are like ordered deported but then most get it reversed upon appeal Mm. yeah so like that's what's going on behind the scenes when these men yeah. are arrested. So those trials haven't happened yet, to be no, clear. No, that comes in 1920. Yeah, but the arrests the have. arrests happen. These men are pulled out of their homes. Yeah. Um, they arrest one guy who's not related to the strike because they got a guy, an immigrant's name confused. Documents are stolen. <sighs> yeah. And in response, uh, there is a mass sort of silent meeting yeah. held, and it is deliberately silent. Yeah, because, that's really neat. Hey. Uh, they had banned meetings. They yeah. had banned public meetings several weeks. Or several, yeah. a week or two before this on account of an earlier riot on June sixth, I believe. Yeah. Where the police had turned like fire hoses on mm-hmm. protesters. And there are pictures of like the Bank of Montreal yes. Main Street being hosed down. Yeah. To scare off strikers, essentially. So they banned meetings thinking it was gonna get violent. Yeah. They arrest the strike leaders. And there is this distinction of, like, oh, if we're all walking together silently, it's not like a mass meeting. It's not a protest or a meeting. It can't be a meeting because we're we're not talking for a walk. Yeah. So they They plan. They can't tell us not to walk. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. So they plan this sort of like walk, essentially, to Mm -hmm. protest the arrests and to try and get the strike leaders released. Yeah. And it does not go well. No, no. Famously, it ends badly when the. Uh, when someone, probably a Committee of 1000 volunteer, drives a streetcar into the crowd on Main Street, helping to sort of disperse it, and what happens is the yeah. people uh, tip the streetcar over on its side, the Northwest Mounted Police charge in on horseback with batons and open fire on the crowd, two yeah. men are killed, countless yeah. more are injured to, like, we don't really know how many. because I, like I've seen like 30, but it's kind of like we don't. Yeah. Well, the they, issue, weren't, they weren't reporting in with their injuries. Necessarily, no. The right? issue so. comes when it's like, oh, a lot of these people involved would have been immigrants. Yeah. Who like if you go to the hospital, a bunch of people were just arrested. Yeah. Like there is like a threat for being yeah. involved in the strike. So why would you report your injuries if you can treat them at home? For sure. So we don't really know. Yeah. So lots of people injured. Um, yeah. One guy dies that day and then another a few days later yeah. from his injuries um we like don't know a ton about either of those people unfortunately no. um but yeah so essentially the strike committee is like obviously horrified yeah you know they they never I don't think expected bloodshed or wanted it no of they didn't you know like a lot of the strike the strike committee has been trying to like be like hey actually we're like not gonna do protests we just want you to stay home yeah that's the whole advice is to like just chill out it'll end when like it ends. just like literally don't go to work and that's all we're asking you to do yeah yeah and part of that is like the big reason behind that is yeah to avoid these kind of like arrests and I think violence the fear and... that like oh because if they start attacking people yeah. what happens is that the telegram in the committee and the government can say like Aha! Uh-huh, these are the violent yeah. enemy aliens. Yeah, and there warned must be about. this kind of like simmering rage, right? Oh yeah, there'd have to be. You know, you haven't been working. Potentially, if you're like not properly unionized, you haven't been paid in like two months. Yeah. Um. So, in general, the 1919 general strike was not a great success for workers. It's called yep. off at this point to avoid anything um, further. Yeah. further happening. And it's funny, like, when I used to do museum tours, it was, like, a real bummer to end on that note. So <laughs> yep. I'd try to be, like, oh, you know, it laid the groundwork for – yeah, well, which, like, it did. And we get some, like, politicians who put yeah. forward some slightly more, like, progressive labor laws later. But, yes. like, the immediate impact is bad. It's a, a huge bummer, for sure. Um, and so, like, also, like, on an individual level – this, like, failed strike is actually pretty devastating. Yeah. So, like, obviously, some of these people arrested, um, some of them are released, like, a small number yep. of them, but several are taken to court. Um, I think seven are eventually convicted of a variety of crimes. Yes. Um, yeah, notably sed- seditious conspiracy. Yep. They spend um, a year or two in Stony Mountain Penitentiary. Yep, yeah, which would not be a fun time. No. Um, and, like, everyone took a risk walking off their jobs, right? Yeah. Um. Particularly, of course, those who spoke up and took roles as leaders. But mm-hmm. I think, like, what I want to emphasize in this episode is that, like, women workers, black workers, immigrants, non-unionized workers, there were a lot of people who took a proportionally greater risk yeah. because their livelihoods were more tenuous mm-hmm. to begin with. Um, and back to our kind of John Robinson story, this risk does not pay off for the OSCP. Oh, no. Yeah. So porters are fired Mm mm-hmm a whole bunch of them um in particular the cp rail and uh and cn rail both seem to deliberately target the leaders of the union Um, oh no yeah most of them spend periods of time unemployed Mm -hmm. um john robinson kind of this is what i was talking about before he kind of hops around between a few different railway companies yeah i'm assuming when you're like the name associated with the union it becomes a lot harder to convince other railways to hire you yeah exactly Um, but John Robinson, to his credit, seems to, like, barely even recognize the failed strike as an obstacle. Oh, interesting, really. Yeah, and I think my theory about this is kind of that I don't think he expected to get anything from it. I think that he went into it thinking... If we go through with this sympathetic strike we can perhaps get included in this greater railway union I think that was always the goal yeah so I think the fact that like they didn't actually get greater wages better working conditions I don't think he was surprised yeah but this is all just me like speculating speculating but um, mainly based on like where he turns his attention to immediately after the strike Oh, okay which is like back towards the Canadian brotherhood of railway employees oh okay um and also towards kind of like legal methods of um like methods through the courts I mean okay. of improving things so um i think like the goal of the order of sleeping car porters was was really never to be like an individual union it was always to eventually join in yeah well other, that would make sense yeah. it seems like even if you wind up with like two equally powerful unions that are working in the same trains yeah that's still something that your employer can then like pit hundred you, right? And it makes it harder to move between jobs, right? Yeah. And all kinds of things. There are a lot of reasons to have yeah a, a more inclusive union. Um, so in June of 1919 already, Robinson is in front of the Board of Conciliation at the Department of Labor. So like how long after the strike? End? I don't even think Cause... this is after this. I think this is during the strike. Because <laughs> the strike ends on like what, June 25th? Yeah. Roughly? No, this is I think during the strike. So he is just like on a mission. <laughs> yeah, he's like, oh yeah, that like strike thing is going on. But also... <laughs> I have a different issue. Like he's like kind of got like several plans of attack here, right? He's like... Good, it sounds yeah. like he's very well organized now he's so, going about this. He's in front of the Board of Conciliation. He's basically arguing that CP Rail is underpaying its sleeping car porters because the Department of Labor had actually set some, like, basic rules for wages. So the board actually agrees with Robinson. Oh, wow. And they order an immediate wage increase for porters on CP Rail, raising their wages by 60% from January of (laughs) 1918. Whoa. So, like, actually a much bigger success than I think even, like, the strike would have asked for or hoped for. (laughs) I mean, when you look at, like, the Woolworths strike that we were talking yeah. about the last episode, where the wage increase is $2 yeah. a week, <laughs> 60% is, like, yes. good for the time. Yes. Though, I mean, 6 to $8, I guess that's a 30 per, 33% increase. That's not bad. Not but, bad, like, but... When you think about it in terms of actual numbers. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then in fall of 1919, um, the Order of Sleeping Car Porters and the Canadian Brotherhood of Railway Employees are both now negotiating wages with CN Rail. So okay. now they're, now he's with a, looking at another <laughs> railway being like, okay, what can we do for you guys? Um, the CBRE again excludes porters by insisting that negotiations be done separately, department by department. Mm. There's this whole thing where like the railways want to do negotiations by region. And and the union. Well, that's interesting for a job that spans several regions. Well, exactly. Yeah. And so. I could see it for individual stations. Yeah. Kind of, maybe, but even that. But basically, the union is like, no, that doesn't make sense and also weakens our position, right? If we're having to negotiate Negotiate differently in every province. Yes. So they're like, no, 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 we'll just do it by department sure (laughs) I wonder if that leaves anyone out I don't think so Hmm. um (laughs) so porters once again lose out on the victories won in these negotiations including paid holidays and Sunday premiums (sighs) um so what does Robinson do he goes back to their annual convention good yes keep yelling at them yes he goes back to them and he insists that they put forward the question of black membership so and now, I guess he can. He has the proof of the strike under exactly. his belt, right? Like, and that's... I think I kind of think that that was the idea. Yeah, that he was like, okay, they're gonna go have their annual convention again. And I'm gonna go there, and I'm gonna say we participated in the strike and gave fifty dollars. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um. So it's the president and founder of the Canadian Brotherhood of Railway Employees. This guy named Aaron Mosher kind of an interesting guy he was like he was the president from when it was founded in 1908 until like he died in the 50s oh wow yeah so he was obviously there when they instituted the these initial membership rules but he does seem to kind of nominally put his support behind
1: robinson's
0: like he he agrees first of all to put forward the question um but he does then cite the involvement of the oscp in the strike Mm mm-hmm Um, And he also says that the Order of Sleeping Car Porters made splendid progress and the officers of that organization have shown marked ability and a thorough knowledge of organizational work. So it's this kind of, like, lukewarm endorsement, right? He's kind of like, yeah, like, they're okay, I guess. They're okay. (laughs) Like, you know, he's not not saying, like, oh, I hate this vote. He's like, yeah, you guys could do this and that would be fine. So the decision after much debate is that the CBRE would, after a period of one year, this kind of, I, I don't know why. just Like a the, trial period? Yes. Like, no, like the opposite, I guess, where they're like, oh, we're going to keep our membership, our whites-only membership in place for a year. Oh. Okay. And then after that, they would allow black workers to join as auxiliary members. No. <laughs> Come so, on. Yeah. Um, and I do want to take a second here to talk about how the CBRE characterized this decision in later years. Yeah. Um, mostly because it annoys me a little bit. <laughs> oh, because they have to, like, I guess justify their choices retroactively. It gets less cool over the decades yeah. that they've had. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, notably, they used this claim to claim to – so they, they used this event to claim to be the, quote, First union in Canada to abolish membership restrictions based on racial grounds. So that's not what they did, though. <laughs> no. It's first of all, like, ignoring that, like, that means fundamentally they had to start with racial restrictions. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that the Order of Sleeping Car Porters had no racial restrictions. Yeah. Um, and also ignoring that Black members, yeah, were only allowed in as auxiliary members until 1965, 65? Sabrina. Oh yeah. my god. Yeah. Um, and also, like, members of the OSCP, they showed up every year at their convention to argue this point. So it's not like they were like, we did this and that solved the, the no. thing. No, well, like, of course not. Yeah. Why would you settle for, like, taking the weird union <laughs> handouts functionally, right? Yes. No, and they're – so I found their, like, official history, which was written in the late 50s. Okay. Um, so it says, when Mosher and his associates began their organizing work – they confined their efforts to recruiting within the ranks of the Brotherhood only those classes of employees who were not already organized in existing and recognized unions. These principally included uh, clerks, freight shed and station employees, classified and unclassified roundhouse laborers, railway constables, crossing watchmen, stores department employees, and all classes of sleeping, parlor, and dining car employees except sleeping car porters. (laughs) Thus, from the very start, The Brotherhood strove to be as broad and all-inclusive as possible in its membership and to avoid the narrow craft exclusiveness, which was typical of the international unions of this period. (laughs) (laughs) This is, I'm not kidding, this is the only mention of porters in that entire history. No. Um, I love it, they're like, we're gonna be, we're gonna be, like, Inclusive. Except the porters, we yeah. won't say why. No porters. No, I think it's very funny. They're that- really saying the quiet, <laughs> the quiet part out loud here. They're like, we're not gonna like mention that they're black, but we will mention they're not in this. Yes, like they. I I think it's really funny that they couldn't like l- completely leave that out, but they yeah. were like, we were well, so when So out- we had all these different jobs, but like just like non-descript guys. Because I guess if they left it out, then yeah. the sleeping car porters would turn up the next meeting yeah. and be like, "Um, hello." Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, to be fair to them again, like, this is from the late 50s. I should not be fair to them. No, no, I won't be. No, that's bad. (laughs) They should have known better. People like Robinson (laughs) have been showing up to advocate for black inclusion in this union for years. How mad. They can't claim to be, like, ignorant of the issue at this point. Right. Yes, it's not like they forgot that that's why those, like, the sleeping car porters were not. No, on some level, they had to be aware and just, like. Yeah. Um, hush, hush about it. yeah so like after 1920 porters could kind of become members of the cbre um but they found time and again that the union was like simply kind of refused to fight yeah. for them in the same way that they fought for full members yeah um now in 1920 um this is kind of like strike blowback i guess yeah. um robinson goes to bat for 36 men who had been fired by cp rail because of the because strike. Because of the strike. Yeah. Yeah. So these are men who had striked and... Is it struck or striked? I don't know. Striped. Striked. Striked. <laughs> <laughs> Nick's on it. Nick's, Nick's confident in this. Um, <laughs> Yeah. So these are men who had striked and then refused to go back when yeah. it was demanded that they did and then were fired. So what's crazy is that CP Rail flatly refuses to even give a reason for dismissal. So I guess oh. I'm saying it's because of the strike. But like what other reason would there be? <laughs> there isn't one. Yeah. So... Because um, you can't say, like, budget cuts. No. Um, so here, Porter's, like, directly pay the price for their unequal treatment yeah. by the CBRE because the Porter's contract was actually the only one with CP Rail that didn't require due process for a termination. Oh. So if anyone else had been fired during the strike there would have had to be some process. Right, yeah, so they're the only ones that don't. Essentially, yeah. yeah. So there may have been other railway employees. I wouldn't be surprised if other railway employees had also been fired as a result yeah. of the strike. But, but they would have had to, like, they're... find a reason for it. Yes, they would have had to fight the union on it, yeah. right? Um, and the Board of Conciliation at the Department of Labor basically says, like, sorry, but, like, your contract is clear on this. Like, we're yep. looking at the contract you negotiated. There's nothing we can do. And so the CPR is able to continue their policy of firing uh, porters as they (laughs) please. So John Robinson later recalls that they had, quote, sacrificed their jobs in the 1919 Winnipeg General Strike. Yeah, that's rough. Yeah. So in this case, the only real kind of minor win for them is that the CPR had at least been forced to be in the same room with them. You'll recall yeah. earlier they negotiated contracts with a couple of other railways. Yeah, CP Rail have been like like the manager of the like porters department was would like storm out of the room like he oh would, wow he wouldn't, like he wouldn't even talk to them oh jeez yeah so they're at least having to sit in the same they room have with to have, them. like a conversation even yes. to like go anywhere so um the strikes promises of better working conditions failed to materialize obviously but there was this kind of slight glimmer of a hope here that there could be some kind of working class solidarity across race across gender and nationality um that's my like very slim silver lining there so okay like what's the what's the point of this all i suppose um i think it's interesting like when we focus in on one group of people we can see how like the broad strokes of history apply yeah yeah um, and don't apply. Yeah. Like, a lot of the things that were experienced by John Robinson and his fellow porters were pretty universal mm-hmm. among things that people who participated in the general strike yeah. experienced. So, things like low wages. Yeah. Um, unstable work. Mm-hmm. Um, difficulty getting their union recognized. Yeah. That thrilling collective bargaining bit. Um, and also, like, historical events are nuanced, right? Yeah. In 2019, we saw a lot of these, like, strike commemorations, and aside from, like, the kind of, like, you know, you'll meet, like, the odd person who's like, oh, they were all a bunch of conies. Yeah. But, like, <laughs> mostly the strike is celebrated as this moment of, like, labor solidarity, yeah. I think now. Um, and, like, mostly it was. Yeah. You know, like I said, we're, this is not an anti-strike episode. Um, no, because we do see for that period of six weeks... Yeah, people like, people are working yes, together. So, like, part of the reason it's a unique moment is because, like, yeah, for the six-week period, there's this, like, unique moment of solidarity yeah. where, um, you know, otherwise trade unions time and time again excluded um, women, people of color, immigrants, and so on. And these people, you know, women um, as well, right, yeah. um, chose to put that behind them to embrace collective action. Yeah. Um, and even then, unfortunately, we're not allowed to, uh, join the ranks of the typical labor movement. No. No. So, that's my, like, bummer of an ending there, um, and I have, well, I'll finish off with a little bit just about what I was able to find about the rest of Robinson's life. Yeah, go for it. Um, also, unfortunately, a bit of a bummer, I'm sorry. (laughs) Um, so he unfortunately, um, experiences a series of tragedies in the 1940s, so, he continues as a labor activist Mm -hmm. for you know the intervening two decades but in 1941 his wife lucy dies at just 56 years old young and then in 1947 his daughter violet um who he seemingly had been very close to like even after she was married they she lived just down the block on selkirk avenue um she also dies she's just 41 years old i wasn't able to find what happened to her she died in um in st paul minnesota and I, i oh yeah yeah Um, so this is where history can be hard because I don't have, like, a personal account to tell you how John Robinson felt about that. Yeah. But, um, the clue I do have is that less than a year after Violet died, Robinson retired, packed up his house, um, where he had lived for more than 30 years and retired to St. Kitts to live with his sister. Okay. So he did, you know, retire with some family. Which is nice. Um, and the other... Kind of conclusion here is that black Canadians were kept out of supervisory roles on rail cars until the 1960s. Just, this is oh, after so even long. after even the U.S. Um, oh, integrates wow. as rail cars. Yeah. Which I think Canadians can often be a little bit like... pointy toity about... Yes, we're like, how are sure, we were racist, but we were not a little bit racist. less racist. But like, even then. Yeah. No! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not really. So, um, yeah, a bit of a bummer of an ending there, but they can't all be... Can't all be good. Can't all be happy stories. No, and I do think it's interesting the way that we have kind of reframed the strike as a, like, contemporary victory. Yes. In some ways, when, like, you can feel the repercussions of the strike going throughout the following decades. Yeah. And that, like, we lose workers, like, the Armstrong family moves to California, mm-hmm. Robinson eventually leaves, that's due to personal tragedy. Yes. But, but like, like, certainly he also dealt with periods of unemployment. But yeah, like... Yeah. Y- That continues on going into, like, the Great Depression. Yeah. Yeah, and also, you know, the fact that, um, I mean, the city was divided already, but it sort of further divides people, Yeah, that line is even more deeply entrenched than it would have been before. Yeah. Yeah, so... So it puts Winnipeg at kind of a weird spot going into the rest of the series, I think. Like, we've seen all this tension we've been talking about for, like, episodes at this point now, because I think a lot of them have been about the growing... Well, chap in Winnipeg, and I don't know. Like, it's not like we have a sort of. I don't know that we'll have a sort of like catharsis. Like, I don't think there's really like <laughs> there's not really an end to that, right? No, because we can still feel it. Yes, but you absolutely. can sort of see the patterns of it through this, right? Yeah. So yeah, the next episode I think will be a little bit more optimistic. Um, I think the next one is our uh, LB Foot episode. It's our LB Foot episode. It's so yeah. moving into the twenties and kind of the like technological changes the city is going to be dealing yeah. and grappling with as we get like electricity and like yeah cool new toys yeah so I think that'll be hopefully a little bit less of a bummer but we're gonna talk about the aqueduct so probably still a bummer (laughs) uh one great 150 all bummers (laughs) 15 bummers in a row that's the new slogan of the series (laughs) all right well thanks so much everyone for listening uh yeah thank you to the Winnipeg Free Press and the Manitoba Manitoba Historical Society for their support we couldn't do this without them. This has been a lot of work. Yeah, um, we did the math today on how much money this was going to cost us. <laughs> in terms I, I of mean, time. in terms of like, I guess like theoretical Critical money, hour. in terms of our, <laughs> our time. Yeah, we well, put a lot of hours into this. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, any support is great. Thank you to to our uh, Patreon members. So yeah. if you want to hear fun bonus episodes uh, on stuff like um, Undertaker bus tours, mm. <laughs> our thoughts on Guy Evans by Winnipeg. Uh, we're going to talk, I think, about, like, sources for the episode. Some kind of yeah. behind-the-scenes stuff. So, fun stuff like that. You can check it out at patreon.com forward slash One Great History. We are on social media at One Great History on uh, Twitter. Not on t- Number One Great History on Twitter. And then One Great History on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, I think that's everything. Thanks yep. for listening.